Father, thank you for this book, uh, this great book that testifies to the gospel, that points us to who Jesus is and what he's done, that helps us to see what this good news means in our lives today. Help us to understand that afresh now. Help us to see clearly who Jesus is and what he's done so that we might share this good news with the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. United we stand, divided we fall. Uh, I guess it's a familiar phrase um, employed by everyone from Abraham Lincoln to Winston Churchill and even Donald Tusk. Uh, It appears to originate from one of Aesop's fables, the four oxen and the lion. Put the picture up. Um, here's Here's how that fable goes. A lion used to prowl about in a field in which four oxen used to dwell. Many a time he tried to attack them, but whenever he came near, they turned their tails to warn another, so that uh, whichever way he approached them, he was met by the horns of one of them. At last, however, they fell a quarrelling among themselves. And each went off to pasture alone in a separate corner of the field. Then the lion attacked them one by one and soon made an end of all four. Oh dear. United we stand, divided we fall. You get the point? If it applies to oxen in fields, it also applies to armies who will never succeed against the enemy if they're divided amongst themselves. It applies to teams in any context, you know, the people in the, in the team in your office or maybe on your school project, you know, if they fall out with one another, well, don't expect the job in hand to be done well. And it's true as well with churches. There is a deep connection between mission and unity. Mission is about reaching out and getting on with the task that God has given his people of making Jesus known and sharing good news about him but if a church lacks unity then actually all the energy it has will be spent on internal squabbles and nothing will get done so there won't be any thought to reaching out because there's too much work to be done solving internal problems but actually it works the other way around as well because if a church forgets its mission if it forgets what it's here for to serve the world around it, it will turn inward again. And it will become an organisation that exists simply for self-preservation. And actually when it does that, the result, again, inevitably, is disunity. Because what you end up with is just people squabbling for power and for internal recognition. So do you see, mission, reaching out to the world, and unity are, are linked inseparably. You can't have one without the other. But suppose you are a church that is struggling with one or the the other or, or both of these things. What is it that's going to help you recover a right sense of mission and a right sense of unity? That is the the, the presenting issue in this great letter to the Romans. Whenever you look at a letter like, like this in the New Testament, it's helpful to see how it starts and how it ends. Because that will give you a clue as to what it's here for. And Paul, who's introducing 
uh, who's writing it introduces himself in verse one. He's a servant of Jesus. He's an apostle. He's one who's been, that means he's one who's been commissioned by Jesus to preach about him and provide a foundation for Jesus's church. And then by the end of the letter, we find that the take-home application for what Paul is writing is that he is seeking to get the Roman church on board with his plans for mission. And in particular, he says he's planning to go to Spain, but he's going to stop off in Rome and he's going to ask them for help. So chapter 15, verse 23, you can look at it or I'm going to read it. He says, I have been longing for many years to visit you. In other words, you know, this, this Roman church isn't a church that he has been to personally or that he, fa- he didn't found it. We don't know exactly who found it. It's the other obvious candidate would be Peter, but it's thought unlikely that Paul would interfere with a church directly planted by Peter. So we, we don't quite know, but he longs to visit them. In order, verse 24 in chapter 15, that when he goes to Spain to preach the gospel there, they will assist him on his journey. And in order to do that, they need to be clear on the need for mission, because otherwise, why would they support him? And in order for them to be clear on the need for mission, they need to be united. And in particular, in the early church, the issue for unity was often between Christians from a Jewish background and Christians from a Gentile, which means non-Jewish, backgrounds. And it will be easy for them to be suspicious of one another or to look down on one another in different ways. You know, maybe the Jewish Christians were tempted to think, you know, we were here first, the Gentiles are second class. The Gentile Christians, meanwhile, would think, well, we don't like being looked down on, actually, and and maybe we don't need these Jewish Christians anyway. And so there was this conflict between them. And these dynamics become clear in the course of the letter. What medicine, then? does Paul prescribe to address these two deeply connected issues of unity and mission? Well, the medicine that he prescribes is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. That is what he writes to them about in this letter. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, which you may not have been, but if you have, you you may be aware that, that Romans is often looked to as the sort of primary expression of the gospel in the Bible. You know, if you want to know what the gospel is, well, you look at Romans, is what we often think. And there is some truth to that because, you know, it's a long book. It goes into a lot of depth, um, as we will see in the coming weeks. But we mustn't lose sight of why Paul is writing to address these issues of mission and unity. And that then becomes clear as we dive into these first 17 verses. He outlines, we can see in these verses, it divides into three uh, chunks that we, we, we see that this gospel, this, this good news, which is what the word gospel means, that, that start to address the issues the Roman church faces. So first of all, from verses 1 to 7, if you put that on the screen, good news for all. Good news for all. So, that, I mean, there's a lot in verses 1 to 7, but don't miss the overall point. Can, can you see with me? He says he's an apostle set apart for the gospel. So that's his job, is to be a preacher of the gospel. But what gospel is this, Paul? Did you make it up? No. Verse 2, it's the same gospel promised long ago. And actually, that was why we heard that first reading from Genesis 12, where that promise was begun, that God's plan from the start has been for the descendants of Abraham to be blessed and to be a blessing to the world. And now what we find is that despite all the failure of all the descendants through the Old Testament to actually bring about that plan, there is now one descendant of Abraham. 
and David after him, who, um, who has come, and he has an additional identity as the Son. Do you see that? Verse 3, God the Son, he became a man, born in David's line, born a Jew, born a descendant of Abraham, and then this Son was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He's talking about Jesus, of course. And it's not that he was not the Son of God until he rose from the dead, but there's a sense in which he was the Son of God in weakness, first of all, taking the form of a servant, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, becoming a tiny baby who then grew up to live the life of an outcast and die a criminal's death. That is, in one sense, the Son of God in weakness, but then at his resurrection, he's declared to be, he's appointed the Son of God in power. And again, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And it's the same logic here. Because Jesus rose from the dead, that is his kind of coronation, crowning of the Son of God in power. And therefore, we can know that the gospel is true and we can know that the gospel is relevant for everyone. Well, why is that? Why does the resurrection show that the gospel is true and relevant for everyone? Well, think about it. There are many voices and prophets in the world claiming different things. You know, follow these rules, obey these commandments, do what this holy book says, keep this philosophy of what a good life looks like. But Jesus says and does something completely different. He says, I am the king who has not just come to tell you what to do, but to sort out the deepest problem that you face, the issue of sin and death and the judgment you deserve. And then he actually goes and does that by dying and rising from the dead. Now, I wonder if we really get this. You know, we live in a world that is quite happy to say, well, you know, Jesus is one of the possible routes to spiritual enlightenment or whatever you want to call it. You know, his way is one of many different possible ways. You know, if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're at school, I'd be very surprised if that wasn't the message that you hear or that is implied a lot of the time by what is said and done. You know, it's great for Jesus to be your personal saviour. No problem with that. But, you know, you can't go around claiming he's in some way universal Lord. That is going too far. The issue is, though, either Jesus did defeat sin and death and take the judgment we deserve when he died and rose from the dead, or he didn't. And that, that, you see, that's not a thing that can be kind of half true or, or just true if you want it to be. It either is true that something objectively was achieved or it isn't. And actually then, if it is true, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or what your personal opinion is, it's something you have to reckon with. So it's like a vaccine for a virus, just to pick a random example. It's not a perfect comparison for all kinds of reasons. But it's the same idea. You see, something has been achieved that reduces the threat and the impact of the virus in significant ways. And you see, that's... From a scientific point of view, it's not just kind of true if you want it to be. It's a thing that has been achieved in a lab and they've tested it. And then they say, look, this is now offered and available to all because it makes a difference. Do you see? And so it's the same kind of thing here. And that's why he goes on. Through Jesus, we received the grace, the gift of apostleship to call Gentiles. That's his particular ministry. 
to offer this new objective reality through Jesus' resurrection to all people, to the obedience that comes from faith. See, this good news isn't something that we merely acknowledge and move on. It's something we need to act on. When we, when we believe it, it's not that our obedience earns us God's gift to us. It's given to us and we receive it by faith and we're going to see a lot more about this as we go through the letter. But it will result in a changed life. That's why he talks about the obedience that comes from faith in verse 5. So it's, in thinking about what kind of news this is, it's different from the news, for example, that Elizabeth is the Queen of England. You know, great, fantastic, great to hear. Uh, and, and it's true, you know, if you, if you believe that someone else is the King or the Queen of England, well, you're wrong, you know, you're believing a lie. It's not true, however much you don't want it to be. But at the end of the day... You know, if someone wants to believe that the Queen of England is an alien lizard um, or or whatever, or or is that, you know, that that someone else is the true Queen, well, you know, if you really, really insist on believing that, does it actually make that much difference? I mean, you know, I want to tell you it's not true, but does it really make that much difference to your life if you want to take a different opinion? But you see, this news here is different from that. That, it's a completely different kind of claim to say that Jesus is the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. It is, it is news for all that you can't ignore. It's the, it's the kind of news that it's more like saying, you know, there's a missile that has been launched a few hundred miles away and it has its sights set on your coordinates. You know, if that news is brought to you, and you, you, know, you think, okay, I believe that's true and I can see that this is, not, you know, this is not a sort of fake news. This is a real thing that's happening right now. There's a missile heading. You, know, you can't just stay where you are and get on with the day you had planned. You've got to change everything. So if you believe it, if you have faith in that message, it will result in a kind of obedience, do you see? Which is to say, I'm, I'm, okay, I need to get out of here. And that is the kind of news we are talking about here. But maybe unlike a a missile, it is good news for all, that matters to all and changes everything because Jesus in his death and resurrection has defeated sin and death. So there's the message, will you believe it? It's often been said, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So do we find it a little easy to turn Jesus just into a sort of personal saviour, my personal saviour, but, you know, hey, they've got their religion, they've got their way of life, and that works for them. You know, of course, in one sense, I can't change what other people think, but Paul is clear, we need to see from the outset, that this good news is for everybody. It's for all people everywhere. It is an event that affects all people everywhere. And so, therefore, if it's for all people everywhere, if it's good news for all It needs to be shared. And that's what we come to next in verses 8 to 15. This is good news to share. In these middle verses in this opening section, the basic idea is, look, here in Rome, here are some people who have responded to Jesus who is Lord of all. And we see here again the way that this is not just a private faith, not just a private thing. It's all of them who've put their faith in Jesus, and their faith is being reported all over the world. Can you see that in verse 8? 
And what we see then is Paul turn from kind of theology about Jesus and who he is in verses 1 to 7. Now he turns in these verses, 8 to 15, to a deep, passionate concern for the Romans and for the whole world to hear the gospel. Because if verses 1 to 7 are true, the world needs to hear about it, he's saying in these verses. And so verse 10, he's longing to come to them. He's longing to encourage them. He's longing to strengthen them. He's been prevented from doing so, and that causes him pain. He's longing to have a harvest among them. And we see... Do you see the fact that Jesus is Lord of all? He he goes on to say he's under obligation to all. He is a debtor to all types of people. He's bound both to Greeks and to non-Greeks. And some translations translate the non-Greeks as barbarians. The Greeks, you know, that stands for kind of sophisticated culture, sophisticated philosophers. The clue to the word barbarian is in the word itself. You know, these are so-called because they say bar bar like cavemen. You know, that's, that's where they got their name from in the ancient world because the, uh, that, that's how the, the more sophisticated Greeks and Latins saw them. But as far as Paul is concerned, he is bound to both, do you see? He is obligated to... This is good news for all, not just, not just sort of wise people and sophisticated people. It is good news for everybody, the wise and the foolish. So he's not just reaching the rich or the well-educated or the well-connected or the ones with good future prospects, maybe in the name of some kind of strategy or whatever it might be. It is all kinds of people, rich and poor, all races and people groups. It's NW3 and NW5 or whatever it might be because Jesus is Lord of all. The implication is that these different groups are represented in this church in Rome. And that is why, verse 15, he longs to preach the gospel. And even that is slightly surprising because we're used to the idea that Paul might want to preach the gospel to non-Christians. We know that, to pagans, to outsiders, to people who've never heard about Jesus. But who does he, with all this passion, who does he say he needs to preach the gospel to? Verse 15, can you see? He says... That is why I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. you. You Roman Christians who've already sort of understood the gospel and you've already put your trust in Jesus and started following him, you need to hear the gospel so that you can unite despite your previous different backgrounds and ethnicities and wealth statuses and all the rest of it, so that you can be united and then you can be engaged together in mission. You need the gospel. That is what Paul thinks they need in order to do that. And so the implication is that we too, we need the gospel too. That is why he has to share it with them. Now if we struggle to drum up this kind of passion that we see in Paul here, it may be then that we've forgotten what he highlighted back in verses 1 to 7. That Jesus is Lord of all. And the gospel is good news for all. And only that will move us to get on board with sharing this good news as Paul longs for the Romans to do. And as we began to think about last week, we can share in all kinds of different ways. In, in praying for one another, for the, for the world, for those who don't know Jesus. In building friendships, in supporting financially, in inviting friends to services and events. But if if it is true that Jesus has died and risen from the dead, how can we not share this news with the world around us? That is Paul's 
point here. Good news to share. And then finally, Paul outlines the content, or he begins to outline it, of this good news, which shows why it must be shared. So thirdly, it's because it's good news that saves. It's good news that saves. From verses um, 16 and 17, you can put that up on the screen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul. Don't we, don't we so easily feel ashamed to speak out, to share this good news with others? You know, oh, I, don't, I don't want to offend anybody. I'm you know, worried about what they might think of me. No, no, Paul says I, he can't be and he won't be ashamed because it's not bad news that he's sharing. It's the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. The salvation that Paul has in mind is salvation from future judgment. This is the the great event from which we need saving. So salvation isn't something that just happens at the start of your Christian life, although we sometimes speak in those terms. But you see, this is the gospel that needs to keep us through our Christian life until the end and until we stand before a holy judge. And we need to be saved on that day. And the gospel does it all. It is the power of God for salvation when God judges the world. And because Jesus has died and risen from the dead, both Jew and Gentile can be saved, verse 16. Now, this is one of the reasons we support the work of Stephen and Deborah Pasht in Geneva. You know, they, they were formerly working with Jews for Jesus. Um, they're, they're now staying on, uh, as we've heard this week, um, not, not with that organisation anymore, but they are still doing that, engaged in that same work. And they and we believe that Jewish people need to hear about Jesus too. That is what Paul is saying here. Because Jewish people were the the race to which God first revealed himself. And he did that for the sake of the whole world. And that is what Paul has in mind here. And, and, And the reason that This good news can save anyone, anywhere, is that in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, this phrase, the righteousness of God, means slightly different things in different places. It means his moral character as righteous. It means his saving activity in putting the world right. It means his gift of a new status of being right with him. Not because of anything we do, but by faith from first to last. You see, the great leveller for different types of people is neither marks nor the markets. It is the gospel that says you are made right with God, not by what you do, but by faith in Jesus, which is open to anyone. This is good news that saves. Can you see, Christianity is fundamentally a rescue message. It's not primarily about feeling good or expressing my true self or looking more deeply inside me or just sort of finding top tips to live a a better life. It is primarily about being rescued from what I deserve because of my sin and declared right with God who made me and sent his son to die for me. So if you've fallen off a cliff edge, as this poor person in the photograph appears to have done, you know, down the side, slipped down into a ravine or something, And, you you know, you can't get out. You've broken your legs and you're just stuck at the bottom there and uh, your life is is in deep danger. Well, you don't then need someone to come along 
and kind of coach you from the side, to kind of look down from above, down into where you are at the bottom of the ravine and say, no, come on, you can do this. you just got to work a bit harder. You've just got to push yourself up, drag yourself out of there. Come on. Now, what do you need? You need someone to come down from a helicopter or whatever it is that they've got there and you need somebody to come down to the bottom of the ravine and get you out of there. And as we'll see as we go through this book, this is true whether we are Jew or Gentile, whether we are wise or foolish, whether we are strong or weak, whether we are impressive or unimpressive in the eyes of the world, rich or poor, young or old, every human being alike finds themselves at the bottom of that ravine and needs rescuing and that rescue is what we hear about in this good news that Paul wants to share with us in this letter and that rescue is what will unite people who in every other way are different from one another because only in this respect are we the same that we all alike need to be rescued and that unity then around the way that we've been rescued will drive us to take this good news to all the world that needs to be rescued too. So are we ready to get on board with that? That is what Paul is saying to us this morning. Let's take a moment and pause and then I'll lead us in prayer. Father God, as we see this good news that is for all because Jesus has risen from the dead, this good news to share that all people need to hear because it's good news that saves all people everywhere have the opportunity to hear and to respond and put their faith in this Saviour. We pray that we would then do the same for ourselves, put our trust in this Saviour, and then unite around him for the work that you give us as a church to reach out with this good news to the world. Please would you continue to equip us in this way as we study this letter in the coming weeks. Please would you unite us, please would you give us the words to share this good news with those we come into contact with this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.